Holy Spirit, we ask you to come again and be with us. We thank you that you have been given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance until Christ comes and we um, have faith that is made sight. We pray that you continue to move us and push us toward holiness and displaying the beauties of Jesus as you're shaping us moment by moment, glory to glory, into His image. We thank you for the history that we have of the church where very um, deeply held um, identity markers were challenged early on from a standpoint of ethnicity, from a standpoint of nationalism, and you, in your grace, um, pushed your people to um, abandon those markers for identity in Christ and seeing others who also trusted in the name of Jesus as being true brothers and true sisters in Him. We still need to do that. We still have that challenge before us as humans. And so we pray that you would open our eyes this morning a little bit more to the beauty of the church and what Christ is building among his people, not based on national lines, but based on trust in the finished work of, of Christ. And it's in his name we pray this morning. Amen. We're in chapter 10 of Acts. Last time, uh, we saw that Peter was staying in Joppa at the house of Simon the Tanner. Do you remember what was particularly interesting about that situation? It would have made him unclean. It would have made him unclean. Why? The Tanner works with dead animals. So you have a guy who uh, is constantly working with animal carcasses, and Peter, being a good Jew, would be defiled by being around that. And yet he's living there in the house of Simon the Tanner. Um, so that should have been a trouble for a good Jew. That should have been trouble for a good Jew living under Levitical law. And we've, we've talked before about the significances between the moral law of God and the ceremonial law of God. When we went through Exodus and Leviticus, we spent a lot of time on that. What are those differences? What do you remember, those of you who are with us through Exodus and Leviticus, what do you remember about the distinctions between the, God's moral law and the ceremonial law that was given? First of all, what is the moral law? Can you tell it to me in 10 sentences or less? Yeah, well, that's somebody else's moral law. We believe in satire in Christianity. Um, what is the... What is the moral law? <laughs> the ten words. The ten words, which were? Go ahead. Y'all keep pointing to each other. <laughs> um, the ten commandments. The ten commandments, the ten words, which, which represent what? The character. The character of God. God revealed himself to his people through the moral code. I am this. You'll have no other gods before me. You, you know, no graven image. All of those things that we see in, the, in God's revealing of himself, 
They're not just arbitrary rules. They're, they're a display of who he is. And he calls his people to reflect him in the moral code. Does that change? No. No, that doesn't change because God doesn't change, right? But we also saw that there were additional laws, ceremonial laws, what to eat, what to wear, those kinds of things. What was involved there? Why were those laws given to Israel under Moses? To be an analogy and a reminder of the other. To be an analogy and a reminder of the Ten Commandments. Of the Ten Commandments. So there was some of that in their legal code. You're talking about how to deal with your neighbor and those kinds of things. And to make them holy and distinct and set apart from all the nations around them. To make them holy and distinct and set apart from all the other nations around them. I don't eat pork because God has called me to live this way, to eat this type of food, to be as a symbol of my distinctiveness as a member of the nation of Israel, as, a, as part of the chosen people of God. I don't wear blended fabrics as part of my distinctiveness as an Israelite dedicated to God to display who He is. I mean, there's a call of an outward ceremonial distinctiveness in the, in the people of Israel under Moses that really is not direct... Well, it flows sort of out of the moral law and be, be different than the world, but it's a physical representation of what's supposed to be going on internally. They're a distinct people. Okay? A good Jew is going to do that. Right? In fact, they went through a lot of judgment for not doing those things. They got ripped out of their land and spread all over creation because they weren't following the covenant of God. Okay? So that's the moral and the ceremonial law. And we're about to go over the narrative of the conversion of Cornelius. And it's going to take about two weeks. This is the longest narrative in Acts. And Luke spends a lot of time here, and it's a very crucial moment in the history of the church for the mission of the church to the Gentiles. And at this point, the mission to the Gentiles has to be carried out by faithful Jews. What kind of problems are they facing here? What kind of issues do you think are going to come up between Jews having being pushed by the Holy Spirit to go to Gentiles and to share the gospel. What are they facing? Gentiles don't start off with a background. There's a difference in background. So you've got you've got where your starting points are and, and where you share the gospel. You're right there. Different, <coughs> different what? Very different, different cultures. Um, there's some serious um, compromise issues for a Jew. <coughs> One of the big issues was, does a Gentile have to become a Jewish convert after they convert to Christianity? Do they have to be, go through the proselyte rituals that Gentiles had to to become Jewish, like the males, if they're convert uh, to Judaism, had to be circumcised? And all the converts to Judaism, male or female, had to adopt those ceremonial laws of Judaism. They had to eat kosher, buy separate pickles. Um, which are the better ones anyway? I mean, it wasn't much of a sacrifice. Um, but, but 
they had to adopt those ceremonial procedures, right? Does that have to happen for them to be full members of the church, to be accepted into the body of Christ? That was one issue. The other issue is, okay, let's say they don't. What does that mean for me as a Jew when I go to a fellow Gentile, to a, to a brother in Christ who's a Gentile, and he doesn't follow kosher? And he wants to eat with me. And I'm in his house. Am I unclean? Do I have to give up my identity, my distinctiveness as a Jew, fellowshipping with this Gentile who is my brother in Christ? So those are two major issues that they had to face. First, must a Gentile become a Jew to be a Christian? Should they go the proselyte procedure when they were converted. Uh, second, the issue of table fellowship between Jew and Gentile Christian. Gentiles didn't follow kosher practices, and Jews like Peter were exposed to real situations of compromise when they associated with them. In essence, to evangelize the Gentiles, the Jews were going to have to lay aside the rituals that made them distinct as God's chosen people. I don't think we get that in our culture, do we? Do we have things that are distinctively American that when we go to another culture, if we were going to uh, be all things to all men so that some may know Christ, that, uh, are there things that we have to give up, really? I mean, maybe our fast food rituals? I don't know. I think if we went to... A, McDonald's? I think if we went Hot to dogs? a Middle Eastern country, there would be a lot of things mm -hmm. that we would have to give up to, to evangelize, especially as a... As a as women, any of the women who wanted to be a missionary to some of these other cultures where, where women have to follow very strict rules, you're stepping onto their ground. So right. it, would be, it would be a culture shock, I think. So the right as an American woman not to have to wear a sheet over your head. Not to have to keep your mouth shut. And, not to, and, and, and freedom of speech <laughs> immediately given up. That's why I'm in America. <laughs> Maybe a, um, something to compare what the what the Jewish Christians felt like they needed to give up or didn't mm. want to give up is similar to when a, like a Muslim person converts because there mm. are so many so many things that they have um, have to do like right. their code. Right. They're praying five the, times a day. Yeah. What they wear what they eat, what they drink. It's similar to. It's a. It's a. Yes, it's very similar. Those strict, those strict dietary laws for them as well. Um, well, just kind of keep that in mind as we go through this. What, what is it at stake here? But let's start. Chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the poor, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, 
whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. We'll stop there for now. So Luke first introduces us to Cornelius. What does he tell us about this man? What are some things that we see about this man? He's a centurion. What does that mean? He's like a he's he's some sort of ranking member in the Roman army. Centurion generally was a, in charge of about I don't know how many guys you think about a hundred. Just kind of get that feeling. I see what you did. There. Yes, thank you. Um, so you have he's a he's a ranking guy. He's over a hundred guys generally. What else do we see about him? He's God fearer. He's a God fearer. What does that mean? Like not necessarily Christian or Jewish, but you recognize the God of Israel. Not necessarily Christian or Jewish, who's kind of in the process maybe of being a proselyte to Judaism. He understood that the God of Israel was the only God. What do we see about his life? He's a devout man. Devout man. In what way does Luke display that? He gave alms generously to people. He gave alms generously and prayed, and prayed continuously. Continually. I'll use the word. <laughs> continually. Often. And those are really two of the three elements that, that converts to Judaism were required to do, to show their piety, two of the three. He left out fasting. But they were, that was the, in, in the Jewish literature, that was kind of a big deal. If you're doing this, you're a pious person. And, and for Jews, too. Giving alms to the poor and praying. Uh, often. Um, he's mentioned by name. What does that tell you? Luke mentions this man by name. Maybe he became well known and they used his name as a reference for all the people. I think you're right. Yeah, I think, I think uh, and, and it's not just me, but smart guys say this, that he was probably well known in the early church, especially the people that Luke was writing to, as being a, a, a member of... Uh, of some notoriety within the, the early church. Jesus um, met a centurion who was well respected by the Jews. Cornelius is seen to be very favorable to the Jewish population there and, and looked on favorably by them. Uh, some have seen this as evidence that the gospel re received well by the military in the early days. I don't know what to make of that. Maybe that's true. But where is he living, nevertheless? Where is he living? Caesarea. Caesarea. And <clears throat> given the name of the city, what would you expect the major population of the city to be? It's Roman, town. Roman town. It's a Roman town. It's named after Caesar. There was, in fact, it was a small town until it was re rebuilt by Herod the Great. Um, and he put in a temple to Caesar, kind of an amphitheater, and... Lots of stuff there to do. Walmart was there, and I think there was even a Dave and Buster's. So they had all kinds of stuff. It was a heavily Gentile area, but it had a strong Jewish minority, and they're often in conflict with each other. They often had um, uh, some type of some type of some type of conflict, as you would imagine, um, as opposed to Joppa. What was the major population in Joppa? Do you remember? Primarily. Aramaic and, Aramaic and Jewish. That's right. And so there was some Gentile influence there, but mainly Aramaic and Jewish. Um, or, or 
Anyway, there's not, actually. Let me say, mainly Jewish. Maybe Judean would be a better deal. Um, so they, they had a, a large, uh, a large uh, majority of Jewish inhabitants in Joppa and a large majority of Gentile inhabitants in Caesarea. Um, wh- where is, what do we know about his, his uh, living arrangement in Caesarea? What does it say? Is this a man of means? He had servants, apparently had a large household, we'll see later. What does that tell you? If you're actively in the military, what are you doing? Making mad money. <laughs> apparently not, maybe, I don't know. Um, you're not living somewhere at a long, for a long time, right? You're on the go. You're doing campaigns, you're doing that kind of stuff. Some have said that he was probably retired at this time from the military. Uh, he had built up kind of a, a, some wealth in Caesarea. Nevertheless, Luke records that he was praying. What time of day is he praying? Look at your little textual notes there. You'll see. About 3 o'clock. About 3 o'clock. 3 p.m. Um, do you remember when we went through Leviticus, there, were, there was a daily offering that was given in the temple. There was one at the crack of dawn. It was the low attendance offering. And then there was one in the afternoon, about three, that was the more high attendance offering. I say that, I don't know. But um, they were both for atonement for the people every day. So the idea here is he's praying at the time that Jews would normally pray at the temple when the sacrifice is going on. That's the, that's the idea here. You see how devout he is to his understanding of Judaism and, and, and pursuing the God of Israel, he's praying at the time of the daily sacrifice at 3, at 3 p.m. Um, this is a Gentile who's devoted to the God of Israel. i got to think, wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall? Hear what he's praying? I wonder. We don't know. He didn't give us any. But it's just interesting. Uh, I wonder what he'd be praying about. So what happens? What happens? He's praying. It's a vivid vision. A vivid vision. It says he sees clearly, doesn't it? In the ESV. I think, I think seeing a vision at 3 p.m. kind of indicates that it's a vision and not a dream. It wasn't a bad taco. Um, uh, or, or some kind of, you know, emotional thing. He's just regularly doing his thing at 3 p.m., in the middle of the day, and he has a vision. And what does he see? An angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord. Incidentally, who takes the initiative to set up this meeting? Who's pushing? I mean, ultimately what we're going to see here is Peter and Cornelius meet. Who's pushing this? Cornelius interested in to meet, you know, this new sect of Judaism in Jerusalem. This guy's kind of, we heard he's wandering around Joppa. He's doing things. I'd like to meet him. Who's pushing this? God is pushing this. The Holy Spirit is pushing this. He sends a messenger, an angel, and the angel says, Cornelius calls him by name. Visions occur frequently in Acts as a means of divine leading. They illustrate that the major advances in Christian witness were driven by the Spirit. And so he gets called out 
in this vision of an angel. And what's his response? Dude, what's up? Terror. No, he's terror. Fear. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Usually when angels show up. Not nowadays. We're not, yeah. Nowadays. nowadays, it's kind of a normal deal. We write books to get movie deals. Um, he has a great fear and respect and awe from this vision that he sees at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And that's kind of what we see in the rest of Scripture. Anytime an angel shows up, somebody's on the ground. Um, and, it, you know, so it's consistent with what we've seen before. What does the angel say to him? He, he responds, what is it, Lord? Seems like the appropriate thing to do. Uh, what does the angel say? Your prayers in your homes have ascended as a have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, does that sound familiar to you? No. It doesn't? Okay, anybody else sound familiar to you? <laughs> kind of smoky. Kind of smoky? In what way? Um, I mean, that's what the sacrifices did in the Old Testament. When they burned the offerings, they would go up as a... Yeah, we see that language a lot in Leviticus. And I, I have in my notes, Leviticus 2.2, it says the priest shall burn this, a handful of flour and oil and those kinds of things, shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And we see that often. We see that in, in the New Testament that, um, that acts of charity and piety are often depicted in terms of Levitical memorial offerings. In Philippians 4.18 you see, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So that the importance of Cornelius's piety is reiterated again and again throughout to the end of, uh, of, of chapter 11, verse 18, when the story concludes. Why, why is it making a big deal about Cornelius's piety? Does he somehow some, have some kind of inroad with God because he's made all the right decisions? What's going on here? Showing his faithfulness. Shows his faithfulness, so he's entitled to get a visit from an angel. <laughs> is that what it's showing? Who is this for the benefit of to know about his piety? And why is that important? The reader. I'm sorry? The reader. the reader. Why does a reader need to know about his piety? Is it only the God-fearers that need the gospel? Who's the audience? The entire world. Ultimately, yes. <laughs> but at the time it was written, who's the audience? When you have an entrenched culture that is defined by its ceremony and being distinct from Gentiles, and now the church is being moved toward a mission of the Gentiles, God is gracious to us. He's gracious and He knows that we're but dust. We are only dust. Clarify. Uh, that we are only dust. And that He, in our weakness, we have these um, prejudices for our own culture. And so He purposefully takes Peter... And he's putting him with the most perfect 
possible Gentile that you can use to make that little push, that little nudge. This is a guy who is pious, who's a God-fearer, who prays at, at the times of the daily offerings, who is well thought of by the Jews. Why wouldn't you share the gospel with him? Right? He's nudging here with Cornelius. It's still difficult for Peter, and we'll see that. But look what he's doing. He's, he's just incrementally pushing them further and further and further into the new identity and what that means. Um, so, what, another thing I found interesting. Look at Cornelius and the life he's living and the piety and the character and all of this that, that, that Luke describes. Compare that to the most unlikely character, Jewish character, Saul, that we just finished up with. Right? You see that contrast. He saved Saul, who nobody thought was possible. And of course, contrast to Cornelius, who's this guy, you know. Anyway, so you see uh, that the angel gives Cornelius Peter's address. And Cornelius picks three of his most trusted men, including another soldier who says de was devout. This guy was probably a God-fearer as well. And he sends them to Joppa. Does he question the command? Why do you want me to send him to John? What? Who's Peter? What, what do you want me to? What are we going to have this meeting over? Do you see any of that? No. No. He's a soldier. Someone in authority has given him an order, and he's going to follow it, right? He immediately does what he's asked to do, what he's told to do by the angel. His obedience to the command is immediate. He doesn't ask any questions about Peter, what they're to meet about, and then they go. They're on their way. It's about a 30-mile trip from Caesarea to Joppa. And so the, the idea is that these men leave immediately, and so they'd probably be there the, uh, the next day. Meanwhile, back in Joppa, let's look at verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. We'll stop there for a minute. So while these guys are traveling from Caesarea to Joppa, now the Holy Spirit is laying the groundwork in Peter's heart. And notice how this unfolds. Not a soldier. Right? Peter is not a soldier. What's Peter doing? Waiting on a meal to be prepared. He's waiting on a meal to be prepared. Where is he and what is he in the process of doing? He's praying on a rooftop. Rooftop's commonplace. People get away from everybody downstairs. It's a time of you know, a place to get kind of quiet and by yourself. And often they go on the roof to pray. Um, he gets a little hungry. 
they, uh, they, the, culturally, they'd have two meals of the day. I can't imagine that, but they, they'd have two meals of the day. One about mid-morning breakfast. Brunch. Sure. And then they would have a more substantive meal in the evening where they'd all kind of recline at table and all this kind of stuff. So that, you know, you, you, you wait for the evening to really eat. I don't know how these people survived, but, but that's how they did it. They light meal, mid-morning, big meal in the evening. All right. Theory is that maybe he missed the breakfast meal. Anyway, he was hungry. Uh, what time is this? About noon. About noon. This shows, this is not a set time of prayer for Jews. But they weren't restricted to only certain times to pray. They could pray at any time. This kind of is used to display that he was being, that, that Peter's a really good Jew. He's praying not at the times of the offering. He's praying continually, right? It's showing that he is he's actively engaged in, in prayer often. Uh, so he asked for some food because he got hungry. And while it's being prepared, something happens. What happens? And what does this lowered sheet contain? What happens? He was really, really hungry. He started seeing things. Okay. If you're a Jew and you see things that, because you're hungry, what would you normally see? Not what's on that blanket. Not what's in this blanket. What does the blanket contain? What does a sheet contain? How is it described? Common. Some tasty frog. It's common, unclean, and the idea is and clean, right? It's both. The categories that you see here are the same categories of animals that are used in, in the description of the narrative of Noah. Both clean and unclean animals, things that are, uh, it talks about reptiles, it talks about, you know, um, what does it say? Birds of the air, and then there's one for the land animals too. Forget the. Anyway, you guys, three the three categories are there. And also, we see the same kind of categories used in Genesis one, the creation. It is indicating everything, all animals, all categories are covered in this sheet. And some have said, well, it's four corners, so it's like four corners of the earth, kind of whatever. I don't know. The issue is the animals. The issue is the, is the animals. So you have all categories of animals that are being lowered in this sheet. What is the command to this pious Jew concerning all of these animals, clean and unclean? Dig in. Eat up. Dig in. Rise. Kill it. Slaughter it. Not for sacrifice. Slaughter it and eat. That's the command. The command is in direct violation of the ceremonial law that they were given by Moses in Leviticus. Direct violation. What's a Jew to do? What does he do? He's being tested. He questions. He questions. He's being tested. I don't think he thinks. He, maybe he's. Well, this is a test of my. I don't. He's. A, he's. I've never been horrified by this, right? 
This is a huge, if it's a test, this is, I'm failing, and I'm okay with that. This is a huge request for a pious Jew to get up, to rise, to slaughter stuff, and eat it. And he refuses to do it by doing what? What is he proclaiming in his refusal? The law. His own piety. His own piety. I, you're asking me to defile myself by eating this meat. I find it very interesting that this happened three times. Peter needs everything three times. Well, remember, in, in Hebrew literature, when you say something three times, that's underline italics and bold, right? This is important. It's a very, very huge emphasis. So it's three times doing the emphasis of the thing. And I also think that there's something going on here with the denial. The three times he's denied and three times Christ restored him. And here you have this issue, this challenge to Peter don't deny me here. Be faithful here. And what is he asking him to do? Put down his Jewish identity. And this is a distinctive, this is a symbol of his distinctiveness as a son of Abraham. That's what makes him separate from the Gentiles. And here the Holy Spirit is pushing him to deny that in favor of, well, he doesn't know yet. Um, hadn't Jesus dealt with this whole food issue already in Mark? Didn't he tell them, it's not what goes into the body that defiles you, but what comes out of the mouth, what's in the heart, what you do with your hands, that's what defiles you. And Mark has a little editorial comment there, thus he declared all foods clean. Remember that? So Jesus already dealt with this. I don't know why Peter's objecting. He should know this already, right? When the rubber meets the road, <laughs> we can know things in theory. We can know things through our creeds and confessions. But when it comes down to it, what are you asking me to do again? Jesus' statements in Mark are followed by his ministering to a Gentile woman. Peter's vision of clean and unclean foods is followed by his witness to the Gentile Cornelius. You can't fully accept somebody if you're not willing to eat with them. I can't display my love for my black brother in Christ if I demand that he drinks at a separate water fountain. That's what's going on here. It's the same thing. Purity, distinctions, and human discrimination are often two sides of the same coin. All right, let's look at verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. 
rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Did Peter understand his vision immediately? No, he's sitting there inwardly perplexed, it says. And yet, who makes it clear? Jesus. Yes, but what does the text say? Who makes it clear? The three well, the Holy Spirit speaks to him, doesn't he? And he says what? What does he first say to him? What's the first word he says? Behold, and then? <laughs> Second word he says? I did. I did. Such a literal group. You're all dispensationalists. Um, what is the... Are you looking for the rise and go? Rise and go is the command again. And it mirrors the picture that he said that he did with the sheet. Rise and slaughter and eat. Right? <coughs> it's the same thing. So that makes it clear to him, uh, maybe there's a connection here. And he tells him to do it without hesitation. So Peter's not a soldier, but the Holy Spirit is gracious to prepare him to do what is needed. He gets an even clearer understanding whenever the men who come to him say, Cornelius sent us to you because he wants to hear what you have to say. There's a clue. I'm to go to this guy and share the gospel with a Gentile. Ah, now the vision makes sense, right? So what's his response to these men? What does he do? Right. But at the very end, they tell him. He does what? He accepts them how? What does it say? He invites them in to be his guest. What's involved in having a guest? There's a meal involved, right? I mean, Peter's already hungry, so that's going to happen. But there's the evening meal that they're going to share together, and he's sharing it with these Gentiles. During that point in history, wasn't there more of, uh, like, guest rights or something like that? Like, there's, I, I just, I've heard this in a couple different cultures of, if you invite somebody into your home, there's certain, um, I wouldn't say rules, but like traditions, I guess, of, if you invite them into your home, they're supposed to be safe, you're supposed to protect them or something like that? There may be some of that, but... I think the issue here is that they're going to be sharing a meal together. Um, and so that, again, displays that maybe Peter got the vision uh, for, what, for what the Holy Spirit was pushing him to do. All right, well, we're going to stop there uh, this time around, and we'll pick, up, we'll pick up the rest of the story next week. Lord willing, the creek don't rise. But uh, before, we, before we go, yes? Uh, Grant has something to say. Sorry. What, can you talk for a second about why it's okay for Peter, an apostle, to have a vision that differs from Scripture? But you and I today, if we have a vision that differs, in, that differs with Scripture, why that's not okay? You mean Hebrews 1? That 
before the canons closed, God speaks to people in various yeah, ways. And now that we have the full revelation of apostolic witness to the ministry, work, and person of Christ, we have something more perfect in the yeah, Word. There, there's a lot of denominations and churches today, Tyler, Texas, and wherever, yeah. that people will say, oh, I received a Word from God, and it told me to do yeah. this, but it's in, in the direct well, opposition to what Scripture says. I don't know that I want to go down that road it, in it, this it, passage, but... Right. Right. Christ already talked about foods and cleanliness, and so the, the Holy Spirit was, again, in a vision to Peter, bringing back to remembrance all that he had said. It was in violation but Christ had already established that in the Gospels, that it was in violation. And Peter was there. And, and Peter was there. So, yes, that's true, too. So there's all, there's all of that there. Again, we go back to our authority, which is Scripture that's written objective apart from us. And God has, has through the apostles, shown us that the canon's closed. I mean, once it's done written, that, then we're done with new visions and, and all those other things. It's, it's displayed to be a more perfect um, expression of his revelation. I, I don't know, I mean, that's, that's kind of a tangential thing to this passage, so I don't know if we spend a whole lot of time on that issue. If we were in Timothy or other places, we'd probably hit it a little harder. But again, he's an apostle, the canon's still coming. So this is to be expected. But I think... An issue that I, that I wanted to kind of hit on was, does Joppa ring a bell for any other narratives about Jewish evangelists? First Samuel. Was it First Samuel? Hmm. Do you remember a guy named Jonah? Not Second Samuel either. Do you remember Jonah? Does the name ring a bell? Okay, so Jonah was a prophet. Yeah, yeah, but he really never got it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you remember that Jonah was in Joppa, and he received a vision from God, a call from God to do what? To go to Gentiles. To go to Nineveh. And to preach. And, uh, and he wasn't a soldier either. Uh, and he ran from it, didn't want to do it. God ended up orchestrating a means by which he would arrive there in protest. Jonah was instructed to preach to Gentiles. He protested the command of God. His mission to Nineveh was more successful than he really wanted it to be, right? Uh, and the legitimacy of that effort, he called into question kind of at the end of the book. The same pattern is seen with Peter. He gets a vision go to the Gentiles. The distinction here is that Peter doesn't run away. He objects. Three times, apparently. But ultimately, Peter is the one, and we'll see this in chapter 11, Peter is the one who makes the argument for the Gentile mission being under apostolic approval. He's the one that makes the case for that uh, first. This is another crucial step of displaying apostolic approval for the mission to the Gentiles. And it's also instructive to us about who we really are. What is our identity? Our distinctiveness as Americans pales in comparison to our distinctiveness in Christ. Are we willing to lay aside national distinctiveness for being set apart in Him? And what does that entail? This issue 
goes right to the heart of what it means to navigate Christ and culture. As Jesus builds his church right here from the beginning, he's dealing with that issue. And he's doing it so graciously. I mean, I, it really struck me. The candidate he picks to move forward is Cornelius. This wasn't some vile person who's a Gentile. He, he recognizes and moves based on who they are to push them further and further and further into, um, into the image of Christ and what he's wanting to do. He changes our most deeply held notions of what it means to be human, our ethnic and national identities versus our identity in him. And we're going to see this unfold, <clears throat> that line being pushed further and further and further until you're going to see Paul basically shed and call uh, into question Peter later on the table fellowship issue uh, in Galatians. Uh, what does it mean to believe the gospel? And if you're not able to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ who have different cultural peculiarities than you, do you really trust the gospel? Do you really believe what you say you believe? And Paul calls that later because the gospel's at stake. He calls Peter out on that, that whole table fellowship issue. What does that mean for us? We, we think of ourselves often as so enlightened and so tolerant and so this. There are things in our culture that I think we, we cling to. Um, but we'll talk about that as we go on. Any, any questions? Comments. It's uh, 10.07. We have about 15 minutes. No. All right. I'm going to pray. Father, it's comforting to see that there's nothing new under the sun. That you from the beginning of the church have challenged our prejudices and our biases against others who are made in your image because of ethnicity or other cultural distinctions. Father, would you, would you push us further in your grace? Would you push us outside the walls of Sylvania we find it difficult sometimes just to rub shoulders with people in Tyler and try to connect with them on any kind of gospel level, either out of fear or out of an unspoken belief that, well, that's really not going to change anything. If we believe that you are sovereign over the hearts of men, We should be zealous, pushing further out and further in to the culture around us in hopes that you do what only you can do, which is change the heart and draw men unto yourself. I pray, Father, you wouldn't let us stay here. That our hunger to proclaim who you are in an increasingly hostile culture, that our love for our fellow man created in your image, yet lost beyond repair unless you move. But those would compel us 
to open our mouths and to point people to Christ crucified. We pray that we would be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, that we should be in repentance, that we should be striving to look more and more like Jesus and how we deal with one another and how we love one another. And that even though we're spread all over the county, and it's difficult to have uh, community sometimes, that we would be drawn together often to make much of Jesus. Thank you for this time we have this morning to do a little bit of that. And I, I pray for Philip in the next service that you would speak through him and that we would hear what you would say to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.